By way of welcome and introduction, we have this Sunday uh, my brother priest, Father Diodoro Mendoza, from the Cathedral Parish of St. Stephen's in Phoenix. He was here with us during the great pilgrimage that we've had. Uh, he and his mother Tina came up, and uh, it's been a joyous, joyous time with them. And he was so gracious when I asked if he would preach this weekend. So um, we're grateful and blessed to have him with that. And uh, I get to just sit for a minute and be preached to, because even priests need to be preached to. So we need the Word of God. Welcome, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you very much. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In our Gospel reading today, we are once again traveling with Jesus and his disciples through Galilee. In fact, they had just been in Nazareth, where Jesus was rejected by the local people his own people. And it is here in Matthew that Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. How sad it would be to be one of those who rejected him and then realize later on what and who they had in their midst. And a little further on, but just before today's reading in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus hears that his cousin, the forerunner, John the Baptist, had been killed by Herod. Certainly, Jesus knew this was going to happen. But in any case, he withdrew from that place in a boat and went to a deserted place in private. Many times in the Gospels, Jesus Christ shows us by example that it is good to have some time alone with God in prayer. But as is the case throughout the Gospels, the people are not far behind. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that the people saw where the disciples were going by boat and ran on foot and arrived at the place where the disciples stopped before the disciples and Jesus had gotten there. They're searching, they're seeking, they're curious, they want to know, they want to meet. And as Jesus saw all the people there, he had compassion on them. He healed their sick. Imagine how many sick could have been there, a huge crowd. He could not turn them away. They are the reason why he came to live on the earth in the flesh. He helped them there with whatever their needs were. He saw them. He spoke to them. He touched them with his healing hands, and he spoke into their hearts the words of eternal life. And as we read in other parts of the gospel, you can imagine how many times did he address first the most important ailment, the first important sickness. Guess what that is? Sin. How many times did he speak to them as he did to the paralytic? We have an account, you've heard this before, 
in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And what happened? The paralytic was healed. And then he began to walk. And then he says, pick up your mat and go to your house. And so, back to the narrative, to the gospel account. As the day went on, it got later and later. The disciples realized that soon the sun would be setting and this huge crowd was still there with them. And no one, no one had anything to eat. So partly for the people and perhaps the disciples were getting hungry too. And they asked Jesus to send the crowds away so that they could all get food. Get rid of them basically, Jesus, because we're hungry and we clearly do not have enough for all of these mouths. But Jesus had another lesson for the disciples, another lesson in mind for them. Jesus told them, you give them something to eat. But the disciples answered him, we only have five loaves and two fish. In the Gospel account of John, it happened slightly different. It seems like it took a bit more legwork leg work to find just that same small amount of food. And here's what St. John says on this account. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves of bread and two fish. But what are these among so many? Well, as Jesus would later teach the Apostle Paul, now he taught his disciples that, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And the Gospel tells us that Jesus Christ... Looking up to heaven, he blessed, he broke, and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples distributed it to the multitudes. And so everyone ate and was satisfied. No one was left hungry. No one. And here, it is interesting to note that the Lord provided just what the people there needed. And notice, there was no ostentatious display, no big production. The bread and the fish were quietly and miraculously replenished and multiplied as all the people were fed. But Jesus could have produced so much more if he wanted to. But there was nothing extravagant, just bread and fish. No lambs in a spit, no barbecue. Nothing like that. And this reminds me of Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana. Remember? When the need arose, he changed water into wine. That's all that was needed. He did not produce a fine, fancy chariot with horses or a big band or anything else. He simply took care of the need in a simple, quiet, and humble way and nothing more. 
Now, this contrasts sharply with what you hear about something being called the gospel. But it is rather called the prosperity gospel. Have you heard that before? Mainly from the megachurch preachers like Kenneth Copeland, like Benny Hinn, like the other one, the uh, New York Times bestseller, the big, huge church. Oh, you know him. Mm-hmm. How many books do you have on your shelf of him? So, on a trip to Albuquerque with Bishop Olmsted, he and I in the car, to go to Father Brian Escobedo's funeral at Our Lady of Perpetual Help, we were talking about, say, the state of the church. And he was curious about my conversion, so I shared with him my conversion as a former Pentacle Protestant. So I can say these things. <laughs> Disclaimer. So, and I mean this with love and charity and respect, but he makes an observation. It's interesting, he says, they have the Word of God, the Bible, but they don't have the sacraments. And yet, he says, their churches are packed and ours are empty. And I said, well, that's partly because I didn't have what I'm going to share with you now. But I said, the manipulation of the gospel. Okay? And I will share this with you. It's only a two-minute clip. The Dark World of Megachurches. You can look it up on uh, YouTube. And I hope everybody can see. ...found its way inside of America's biggest megachurches and being taught by its biggest preachers. The Word of Faith movement is its name, and its teachings are often referred to as the prosperity gospel. It's a simple idea. God wants you to be prosperous through your finances, your health, your marriage and relationships. In fact, those are things that belong to you through your faith, if you are willing to receive it. The prosperity gospel often refers to its believers as little gods. The idea being that we were made in the image of God and therefore possess a level of divinity within us that allows us to bring into existence the prosperity that we've been promised. You are God's little G. You are God because you came from God and your DNA and Jesus' DNA are exact. You're exactly like it. It sounds amazing. So how do I earn this prosperity? How do I access this divine power that I supposedly have? Well, it starts with your faith. But if you'll stay in faith, there will come a point where God will say, enough is enough. It's payback time. The Bible says, I know you love the Lord. So you... It's payback time. I won't continue because it gets longer and longer. But here we have an example of, this, of the distortion of the gospel, of the truth in very poisonous and heretical ways. They may mean well, but there's a deception. And St. Paul warned us of the wolves dressed in sheep clothing. Such false teachings claim that if you have enough faith, as you heard, the Lord will make you rich. 
or supply you a fancy car or heal your sicknesses. Name it and claim it, they say. And it is usually very ostentatious, prideful, and a conditional on making a large donation to whomever is spreading this false gospel. Very, very dangerous. This is not what Jesus does. This is not what Jesus preaches. This is not what Jesus teaches. So it contrasts sharply with what today you hear about sometimes, sorry, it contrasts sharply about the truth, who Jesus is, a distortion for marketing, for self-gain. So back to the narrative. As time wore on in this evening, a certain danger arose. And this is what's taking place in the mind of the faithful who are following Jesus. And that is this mindset, this worldly ambition of Jesus, from the people to him, not his disciples, but the crowd there. Even though Jesus spoke to them the words of life and showed them signs and wonders and miracles, such that only God could do and produce, the people started clamoring for him to achieve their worldly, political, and nationalistic goals. They wanted an earthly king, an earthly messiah. They wanted to be no longer under the Roman governor, the Roman emperor. They wanted their own kingdom proclaimed here and now. And we know that that's not what happens, right? Our gospel reading tells us how everything comes in this moment to an abruption, an end. Jesus telling his disciples, get in the boat and leave. We're going, we're departing. In the Gospel of John, we are given a little clarification about this situation. So this is what he says. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force in order to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's what St. John says. Why did he leave? With his signs and wonders, he could easily have ushered in a new earthly kingdom right then and there. But as Jesus said later, remember his conversation with Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have fought so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So after showing the crowd the wonder of multiplying the bread and the fish for them and many, many healings, Jesus did not want them to place on his ministry and message a worldly value. Here's where they get it wrong. He did not want them to see in him a provider of temporal and material sustenance and physical health. Now, does God provide for us? Yes. He gives us gifts, talent, right? Treasure, but it's all temporary. He gives us physical health, and sometimes we get sick. It's part of our fallen state. But we know that he is saving us and healing us, and we will be with him in heaven. And we are pilgrims on a journey to heaven. We also have to remember that everything that God made, he made good. And so we are stewards of his temporal blessings. They are not to own us. We are to manage them accordingly. Make sense? You follow? Okay. And notice, 
He did not want the loaves and fishes to eclipse or distract from the heavenly bread. While he demonstrated that he, that we, excuse me, should care for each other, which we should. You feed the sick, the hungry, the poor, the needy. Of course. But that wasn't his focus altogether. There was something greater about to take place. And we hear this from the words of St. John. He says, John, Jesus therefore said to them, Amen, amen, I tell you. It was not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is what comes down out of heaven, and it gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us, give us this bread. Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen, amen, I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. See how it's all put into proper context for us. And as if knowing that there will be times when those of us who have come later, later on, would struggle with doubts, Jesus continues to make the point of the centrality and eternal significance of partaking of that heavenly bread. Remember this passage too, John chapter 6. Jesus therefore said to them, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and as I live because of the Father, whoever eats me will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate the manna and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. I know we all believe this, but there is a population of people out there who do not know this truth. And I firmly believe that we are not fully evangelized until we've come to the table of the Lord and have received his body and blood. And God came down from heaven, taking on our human flesh, except for sin, to save humanity and reconcile humanity with him. So therefore, it is up to us who sit here in a privileged place in the temple of God before the throne of God to share this message of salvation with others who are thirsty and who are hungry. And you are his messengers to bring them to the one true God so that they too will receive him, have their sins forgiven, and know that that's why Jesus Christ came for them and for them to eventually, as all of us, anticipate the second return of Jesus Christ and spend all eternity with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory to Jesus Christ.